The consequences are high. The cost is high. That's the reality of the situation. If they want to be people of impact, if you want to be an organization of impact, the cost is high. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay, but before we get into the episode, I want to give you some background on what you're about to listen in on. Remember, we took the lead innovators from each of our participating congregations to LA for an immersion trip for about four days, three days, something like that. And part of our trip was going and spending time with Jay Panther, who you're about to hear. Jay is the director of Young Life Impacting Hearts, and that wing of Young Life works with kids in the foster care system. So Jay is going to tell some incredible stories about working with kids who have experienced significant trauma, who have been pulled from their homes, who live in group homes or have bounced around in different foster care homes. And he has faced some really unique challenges in this ministry. So I think you're going to love this episode. Also, a little bit of background on Jay. He was a professional snow skier and then professional beach volleyball player before doing this. So who is this guy? I mean, come on. Anyways, I think you're going to love the conversation. You hear his heart come through uh, pretty clearly. It's incredible. It was a real gift to spend time with him, and I hope it's a gift for you as well. Enjoy. You guys got some uphill battles in front of you, (laughs) and it's the only place that I'd want to be. And perseverance is going to be the name of the game for you guys because God can do anything, right? but probably none of you guys are going to fix the problem. You just are going to do life with the people that God puts in front of you and help it, and maybe not even help it be better for them, but maybe they're just not alone in it. Um, I love talking about the God-sized dreams. We talk a lot about having, it's what, it's what we call our God is able list. Um, I was challenged a few years ago. Someone said, if all your prayers were answered, what would happen? I was like, oh, I don't even know. Um, But so that dramatically changed my prayer life. And I started spending some dedicated time praying the same. I got some lists, and I just pray over these lists. And I think, you know what, God, if you answered all my prayers, some crazy stuff would happen. Um, And it's scary to dream or to even try and think as big as God. And so... It can be intimidating to put things out there like, I pray for God to restore all families. That would be crazy. Um, You know, for Young Life to be going after kids that are in foster care, that are homeless, that are incarcerated. It's a ministry that's been around for 75 years. How, this kid in Southern California, how is that going to happen? But, we pray those prayers and God opens our eyes and opens doors. We just stay faithful to what's in front of us. Yeah, so for me, my journey has been a weird one. I grew up in the church. I uh, had a real relationship and I loved Jesus through high school. And then I discovered drinking and girls and partying and success. And I was on the U.S. ski team for a decade and traveled the world and made money and uh, just wanted nothing to do with God. And then I had an interaction where I actually felt God give me a hug. And I knew in that moment that he was real, that he loved me, and that he wanted my life. And I was like, I have no idea what this looks like, but I'm in. This is way better than anything I could have ever imagined, and so I'll follow this. Um, About the same time, I had some, so I was spending time in Park City, kind of based out of there, traveling for the winters, and I'd come down here for summers. I had a buddy that was living down here and just hung out with him, and his church group went to India to work with orphans. They were coming back and they're like, man, 
we shouldn't have to go all the way to India to work with orphans. Like, we live in LA, LA's got everything. Let's go to LA and work with orphans. So they came back, we were all inspired, let's go save the orphans. Then we learned that in America they're not called orphans, uh, it's the foster care system, and okay, so how do we share Jesus to kids in foster care? We can't just show up, right? They're wards of the state. We can't just show up talking about Jesus. So we created two nonprofits, a faith-based one and a tutoring nonprofit. And we figured we'll tutor the kids. As we get to know them, we'll invite them to club or youth group. Um, Young Life is what we call, Young Life Club is what we call youth group, basically, our weekly meetings. And uh, a handful of us had had some level of experience with Young Life, and so we weren't trying to intentionally replicate Young Life, but, you know, when you go to where kids are, you hang out with them, and then you get together to share Jesus with them based in relationship. That's kind of what Young Life does. So it looked a little bit like what Young Life does. We quickly realized that we did not need the tutoring part, that social services was like, we, it's a mess. We're doing the best we can. Social services crushes it from my perspective. They do a great job with this super broken world. Um, there's just, it's hard and it's impossible. And of course you can, from the outside in, you can look and see ways that they could do things better. But for the most part, um, a lot of you guys are gonna be working with social services. So just decide now that you're gonna love them and love what they do and know that they're not gonna be perfect and that's okay. I would encourage you to consider how you can serve them, um, how you can make yourself seem like a resource to them. They should love you. Whatever it is that you're all is the name of what you guys are doing is gonna be, Anytime that name comes up, someone in social service will be like, oh, I love them. They're awesome. I got this story from this person with them. Um, but so, uh, so we were just, you know, God blessed what we did. We got to meet a bunch of kids in foster care in LA. There's 30,000 kids in foster care in LA. There's 500,000 in the US. Initially, it started with that tutoring program, and we just cold called group homes. We're like, hey, we got free tutoring. Anyone want? Uh, now it's slightly more sophisticated, but not a whole lot. It's, we just, again, we just try to figure out how can we bless social services? How can we be around and there? How can we be a presence? How can we go where kids are and meet them? Um, so we know where all the group homes are. So I'm over what's happening in Orange County. We know where all the group homes are. They all know us. We get to know their staff. We take staff out to coffee and lunch and um, we start with relationships with them because they're the, the gatekeepers to the kids. Um, you'll find that there's a lot of faith that runs all through social services. Um, and the people that don't have faith for the most part are pretty wide open to you bringing your faith to the table. You'll hear probably don't proselytize. Don't force kids to believe anything, which we know you can't. You, wouldn't, you can't, you wouldn't. Uh, so it's not a problem. Um, but we also, you know, social services does foster family picnics. We're there with the table and we bring food and we help set up and break down and we do whatever we can to take stuff off their plate. And then we just meet kids while we're there. Um, we do a lunch every year for all social workers. So, um, and we just feed them a really nice meal, get them together and then tell them who we are and what we do. Um, we showed up at first and we talked a bunch about family. We're gonna be family and we meant it and people were like, don't talk about family. You guys are not family. We've seen too many people come and go. Now they talk about us being family. Um, we just keep showing up. Uh, there's a bunch of ways. We, we buy Christmas presents for the social workers to give to their kids. We have nothing to do with it just here, social workers. What do your kids want for Christmas? Here's Christmas presents. Give them to them from you. Um, and then now that we've been around a little bit, you know, Counselors, judges, social workers have all had kids that have hung out with Young Life and their lives have been changed. And so now when they have kids they don't know what to do with, they call me and say, hey, what, can, we, can we send someone your way? Um, so we can talk more offline. There's a bunch of creative ways, but that's the essence of it, you know, um, is to bless them. And so God was blessing us and what was happening in LA and Young Life approached us and said, hey, why don't you guys, you know, we've been really trying to figure out how to get at foster youth. We've been banging our head against the wall instead of recreating the wheel. Why don't you guys just be our foster youth ministry to LA County? We're like, cool. Um, 
And then we had to learn how to do Young Life and camp and all of that. And it was, there was a learning process, but uh, it was wonderful. And from the very beginning, God gave me this, from the moment we started with Young Life, I thought, as I learned what Young Life was, I was like, oh my goodness, 75 years old, they're in like 100 something countries, they're in every state, most cities. There's all these people that love Jesus and love kids and they have no idea how to love foster youth or even how to get at them. And so I thought, man, what would happen if we could just educate Young Life about what's going on in foster care? Because I guarantee you they care and they don't know. And so that was my dream from the beginning was, let's figure out how to replicate what we're doing in LA County. A um, Couple years in, there was an opportunity for someone else to run what was happening in LA and I thought, all right, God, I'm gonna go somewhere else. I'm gonna start it from scratch, the Young Life way and figure out how to really make this thing purr. So I prayed about it a bunch for a bunch of reasons. I think he led me to Orange County. One is my regional director, the person over Southern California is there and they just, she has a heart for foster youth. And so she's supportive of you know, Young Life oftentimes their weekly groups will have 50 or 100 kids. Mine have 10 and she's like, awesome. It, you know, it looks different. You know, we got 10 leaders and 10 kids and that's a great night. Um, so the support was there, but also there's money in Orange County to change the world. And um, God has blessed me with a pretty wealthy network for my athlete, athletic career. Uh, and I just thought, man, what happens if I can get these people to understand what's going on and we can send money everywhere else? Uh, no idea how that was gonna work or anything else, but rolled into Orange County, four years later, here I am, and I just wrote down everything I did for four years. Now it's called the replication model. Um, we just hired a couple more people. Uh, we actually just, Young Life was just awarded a $400,000 grant to grow ministry to foster homeless and incarcerated youth. Uh, we pretty quickly on realized, you know, when I was in LA, it was like tunnel vision. I was drinking out of a fire hose. I had no idea what was going on, just trying to get through the next day. It's hard to have vision past that. Now with Orange County, I try and hang out at the 30,000 foot level quite a bit. Um, and what I've realized is most of our kids are homeless at some point. Most of our kids go to jail at some point. So you can't do ministry to foster youth without doing it to homeless youth, without doing it to incarcerated youth. It's the same demographic. They're the same kids. Not always, but for the most part, there's massive overlap. Um, and so now we're trying to figure out, you know, next step for us is we're doing a gathering in a couple of months uh, where we're just gonna bring everyone in Young Life that's interested in helping these kids, which I think will be a lot of people because Young Life's mission statement is to introduce every kid to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. And Young Life takes that really seriously. Um, and these kids are just as important as the kids that are staying at one high school for four years. Uh, but there's things that need to look different because our kids don't go to one high school for four years. They go to, you know, the average kid goes to five high schools out here. Um, and so if you're just showing up to high school every day, that kid's going to be there for four months and then be gone and you're never going to see him again. So how can you do a relationship with them in a way that gives you the opportunity to share Jesus in a way that makes sense to them? Um, and so... Uh, yeah, just the more that I learn about these marginalized kids and what's going on, the more I realize that perseverance is the ticket. And you know, we try really hard to chase after our kids. And I would encourage you guys that probably for the most part, you're gonna have to really chase after your people. Um, you know, for some of them, there may be something where you can set up a resource like a meal, which is actually what was happening here when I showed up. They were feeding, I don't know if you guys saw all the homeless people outside on the street, but they were feeding everybody in here. That's why the coffee, uh, the table smell like coffee. I was trying to wipe them down before, but still that residual <laughs> smell. Um, but sometimes you can offer a resource and you can get people to come, but they're gonna come for the resource. Um, but you're gonna have to pursue them to develop relationship with them, to earn trust, um, to have an opportunity to share, to share Jesus in a way that doesn't feel forced, that, without an agenda. You know, we talk a lot about, we're gonna love people because Jesus loves us with no agenda, no expectation of their behavior changing, no expectation of what God's gonna do inside their heart. Um, we're gonna love them because that's our job. And uh, that's hard, it's hard. It is hard to work with people that have lived traumatic lives. Um, 
All of you guys should probably be considering trauma-based, trauma-informed care. And I'm assuming probably most of you guys have heard about that and know about that. It's crazy, there's a statistic now that says that one, 50% of people, one out of every two persons experiences some significant trauma in childhood. And so that can be a parent dying, a pet dying, a car wreck, what they, what they describe as trauma. It doesn't have to be what probably the people in this room think about when they think about trauma um, with some of the horrible stuff that happens in broken places. Um, but you can, a person that's, who's you know, in, in utero, whose mom is using drugs, who's experiencing abuse, who's having high levels of anxiety and stress, the brain is changing in utero. And then the first two years of development, there's significant brain stuff that's happening. And if there's high levels of stress or craziness going on, the brain is changing. And so as you are interacting with people that have experienced trauma, especially in early childhood, but at any point, their brain quite literally is different and they see the world in a different way, they interact with it in a different way. And so we have to figure out how to love them and interact with them and communicate with them in a way that's meaningful to them. Um, and it's hard and it changes and it's different person to person. Uh, and the more someone has been through, the harder it is for them to trust. And the more that you start to get close to them they're gonna realize, oh, this person could hurt me, and they're gonna push you away, and so you gotta fight through that. And then, I mean, and you know, what we see it with our kids, I don't know that we ever really have their trust, you know? It's just, we have their kind of trust for a little bit longer before they start to push us away again. Um, and then trust is super fragile. I actually, I was walking up, and I had a 19-year-old uh, girl call me who we've known for over four years. Uh, and our story with her is crazy. We met her and she was one of those people that her trauma made her an oversharer and makes some people like walls up super high, you know, hoodie on, drawstring drawn, not talking to nobody. Uh, but she was an overshare. The first time I met her, she told me about the time she had been raped and how many houses she had been in. And um, I was like, okay, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and then six months later, I'm sitting in a courtroom with her while she's testifying against one of the men that raped her as a minor, and, uh, which was crazy. And then um, I did not think that, I thought honestly this girl was gonna commit suicide before she graduated from high school. She graduated from high school last spring and she's in college now, she's taking three classes, she's working at Amazon. Um, from, all, like, from a lot of perspectives, she's got it together. And then she called me as I was walking up and said, I need $300. I was like, what? We have a ministry policy. We don't give people money. And you guys are going to have to figure that out because you probably need to establish boundaries and whatever it is early and just stick to it. And you're going to have to say some really hard no's. And you're going to have your heartstrings tugged on. And I, I mean, I told her, I was like, our ministry, like, we have a policy, but I can't give you money. But I'll pray about it. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, she's like, it's like one of those, like, you want to make the exception for her. She's living with her cousin who's got an infant child and their lights are gonna go off for the next three weeks till someone gets a paycheck. Gosh, that don't, doesn't seem right. And also, if they don't suffer the consequences of their poor decisions, then how do they learn? And who am I to be the judge of when that should happen and when it shouldn't? I'm not. Uh, and so I need God's direction. I don't know how many of you guys have done much with whatever your population is. But if you've done much, you probably realize that situations get really escalated really quickly, really often. Like there's a lot of anger um, and it happens all the time. And so for us, we use something called TBRI. It's trauma, sorry, trust-based relationship intervention. From my perspective in my world, it's become the gold standard in trauma-informed care. Uh, Dr. Karen Purvis out of TCU, Texas Christian University, um, started it. There's a wealth of resources on YouTube. Um, most of her stuff you can get on YouTube. I would encourage TBRI. I've seen a number of different trauma-informed um, material, and I think TBRI is the best. And I don't, I have no incentive to say that, it's just from my experience. I grew up in a really traumatic, I grew up in a family with an alcoholic mom and a rageaholic dad, and it was, 
crazy nightmare. I should have been in, I should have been in foster care. I had no idea about that I should have been in foster care until I started working with kids in foster care. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I started working with a counselor and my counselor's eyes would get wide sometimes. And I was like, I don't feel like your eyes should get that wide. You've been doing this. I don't want to see, I don't want to see you think that what I went through is crazy, but through making this mistake, when we were doing initially what we were doing before we became a part of Young Life, our like basically we were asking leaders to show up once a week, pick up kids, bring them to club, take them home. That was a commitment. Then all of a sudden we joined Young Life and Young Life has contact work and so you're going and spending time with kids weekly and they have campaigners which is Bible study and so you're with the kids that you know the best and you're discipling them and getting in the word and all of a sudden I'm asking my leaders to have two to three points of contact a week minimum with their kids. And so, you know, as I'm learning about Young Life and I'm, you know, all excited about it, I'm going to my people and I'm like, we got to do this and we got to do this and... I didn't even, I was so excited and didn't know anything about anything. I was fresh out of a ski career and had, I mean, I was so clueless, had no idea how to lead or anything. So I wasn't even picking up that my leaders, the whites of their eyes were getting massive and they were like, what? And so I just kept hounding them like, this is good stuff. We got to do this good stuff. This is how we're going to see lives change. And then it, I, I created an, an environment of resentment because my leaders eventually sat me down and they're like, we signed up for this and now you're asking us to do this. And we constantly feel guilty, but we, we can't, we won't, whatever the truth of the matter is. And so I was like, okay, one, you have to decide what your ask is and then you do not shy away from it. You do not shy away from the gravity of the ask. The consequences are high, the cost is high. That's the reality of the situation. If they want to be people of impact, if you want to be an organization of impact, the cost is high. It is going to take time, it is going to take emotional capacity, physical capacity, mental capacity. And so for me, I tell my leaders up front, you're gonna have two to three points of contact with your kids, minimum. You're going to a weekend camp, you're going, in the school year, you're going to a week-long camp in the summer, um, you're giving messages, you're helping prepare meals, you're like, your kids are going to hate you, they're not going to want to talk to you, you're going to show up places and try and talk to kids and they're not going to respond. I'm going to ask you that over and over and over again. You're going to put yourself in situations where if God doesn't show up, nothing's going to happen. And that's going to be the reality of the work we do. And if we're ever in a place where we're comfortable enough that if God doesn't show up, it's still a good time, then we're probably missing something. That we're not reaching the, the truly marginalized. Uh, all to get back to the ask is the ask is big, and so just communicate that clearly. Set the expectation on the front end, and then hold people to it. Um, I would I would tell you that probably the hardest part of your ministry, I would guess, is that you're going to have a lot of people that are going to want to help, and you're going to have to say no to more people than you're going to say yes to, and it's not going to make sense because you're going to always need more people. And the way that I look at it, and my wife helps keep me encouraged in this because she is my, she's got a wonderful intuition and she just, her compass points to Jesus. And sometimes I get bogged down and stuff and I'm like, we just, need, let me just say yes. We have no male, we need way more male leaders. Can I just say yes to some guys? And she reminds me, you're the gatekeeper to these people. I, I am responsible to keep those kids safe to the best of my ability. And so I'm responsible to put good people with them. And the same thing with whoever you're working with, all the, the populations you guys described, you need to create safe environments for them. And if you let one bad person in, I mean, imagine if I let one leader in that inappropriately touched a kid. I mean, that might happen at some point. I can't be in total control of that. But what if I said, I'm interviewing somebody and I just have this little weird sense in my spirit, I can't get a piece about them. And I'm like, well, everything they said is perfect. It makes no logical sense for me to say no to this person and we need them and they're awesome and they're dynamic and they're high energy and they're funny. And then something happens. So I say no to those people. I just, trust, I just keep saying, God, I'm going to trust that my gut, that the things that I feel, if I got a niggling, if I can't get a piece, that that's you. And if it's not, then figure, fix it somehow because I'm going to just, I'm going to try and be obedient to that. And so I say more, I say no to more people than I say yes to. And I always need more leaders. Um, so recruiting. Um, so, yeah, it's hard. It can be hard sometimes for churches to work together in my perspective from what I've seen. 
we're not a church. We have a ministry that most churches don't have. And so we, it's really easy for us to find church partners and they can partner in a litany of ways, but it's not hard for me to, especially at this point with the relationships I've built, it's not hard for me to call a church and say, hey, can I come and have five minutes on a Sunday morning and just talk about who we are, what we do, and invite people into it, and then have a table in the back afterwards and just gather people that are interested and get contact information. So that's a pretty significant way where we get mass intake, but also it's a lot of work and it's crazy. I mean, I'll go to a church and I'll get at least 100 people that fill out the form and they say they want to volunteer, they want to be on my board, they want to donate. 5% maybe follow through and then there's a half of them don't even make it through the process for whatever reason. So, you know, I maybe get one volunteer for every church presentation I do. Um, and I think that's just the nature of it because I don't shy away from my ask and um, people really want to help until they have to count the cost. And then you don't let them get away from the cost. They're like, oh, well, what, you know, sometimes I have this on Monday and, you know, I, I'd like to go to camp, but, you know, we only go to Hawaii that week and I'm sorry. Like, I get it. I'm not, there's no judgment. You... I trust that you have the Holy Spirit and he's going to lead you, but I gonna, I'm going to try and stick to my guns and what I think he's asking me to ask. Um, we are also blessed at this point because, to be quite honest, my leaders end up sometimes more transformed than the kids we work with. And so their networks of people as like just, we get a lot of leaders that come in because they know a leader that's leading. And so that network just kind of keeps spider webbing out. Um, I think also to be totally honest, like the demographics that you guys are all working with, they are in, like there's an anointing on that work. Like the Bible is super specific about widows and orphans and homeless and you know the furthest out, the marginalized. And so stuff happens in our ministry that doesn't happen in a lot of times in what I see in traditional young life. And I don't think it's because I'm doing anything any better than anybody else. And I, in fact, I know that a lot of the young life people that are in my position, it's called an area director do things way better than me. And they've been doing it for a lot longer and they're way more organized and they're more dynamic and they're better communicators and they're more connected and God just provides. Um, and so I would encourage you guys in that way. Um, you'll never have enough volunteers and also you'll always have the perfect group of people that are perfectly equipped for a moment such as this, whose entire lives have led to this moment, to be in this place, to be with these people. Um, and then I work really hard to, once we get volunteers, to empower them, to give them the vision, to give them why we're, like how we wanna do things, what we're trying to do, but also to say, I'm not attached to the program. I don't, I'm not attached to the Young Life way. I'm not attached to how club looks. I'm not attached to how camp looks. I'm not attached to anything. I'm attached to people meeting Jesus through relationship because I think that that's, you know, the, most, the best way for us to do it with this group. I'm, I'm attached to the relationship part. I can't get away from that. But if there's a better way to do it and someone shows me, we go away from relationships too. I don't, but I don't know. I think it's pretty biblical. Um, and so I think that the leaders, uh, I think they, they feel that empowerment. And so our leader retention rate is higher than uh, most parachurch ministries that are working with youth um, from what I can tell and what I see and what I hear from other people. Um, oh, I also, 80% of my time is with my volunteers and my staff. I got into this because I was th th thought I was going to be working with kids and I still, like, I have my group of boys and I have my, I go to, the, I'm, I'm part of the high school ministry and I've got my boys that I'm discipling but I've worked really hard to pass relationships off. Because at the beginning, they were all attached to me, and I was, you know, I'm trying to hang out with 30 different kids, and I can't do, disciple anybody well, and my leaders are floundering. And so I work, I work hard to spend most of my time with my leaders and my, because um, they can impact way more people as a group than I can as an individual. And so we do a lot of, I'm trying to constantly balance the, the cost with avoiding burnout and checking, like, I get together with all of them a few times a year and I take them to a really nice meal and you know, we just sit down and I check in on their physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health um, with no judgment. I celebrate the ways that they're thriving. 
Um, I encourage them in the places that they see room for growth. Sometimes God gives me insight into some easy things that they might do uh, to improve. You know, it's not uncommon for my leaders to be like, I'm so busy, it's hard for me to get in the Word. And my answer is oftentimes because I'm auditory. The Bible app will read to you. What are you listening to on the way to work? I don't know. It seems like it, for me it's a great fit. <laughs> so I, I share that with everybody. Um, yeah, so another, like as far as recruitment, it's churches, it's word of mouth. Um, I see a big part of my job is to be an educator and a networker. I think that a lot of people don't know what's going on with the demographics that you guys are working with. And so the more that you are on your stuff and you can, you can hit somebody with impact in a way that uh, speaks to them where they are in the moment, um, think you can inspire them to get involved in whatever you're doing, even if it isn't directly with you. And I'm okay with that. If people learn about foster care and then they go doing something different, I love that. Um, well, part of it is we have leaders that drive an hour one way to get kids and an hour back um, when they move, you know. And so we kind of have a radius of like 60 miles depending on traffic, you know, and what's reasonable and also balancing like is it sustainable? Are you gonna do this for three months and then you're gonna be burnt out for two years and not do anything for the kingdom because I freaking used you all up? And you know, God provides insight to that. Uh, we, so we work really hard to pursue kids. Um, and again, I communicate that at the beginning. Like we're gonna pursue kids at the end of the earth. And if you're in deep relationship with a kid and they move an hour and a half away, I'm gonna tell you to stop coming to club and go spend one time a week with them um, because that's the, that's the good stuff. Uh, and if you're deep in it with three kids and they all move away and it's not realistic to get any of them to club, stop coming to club and just go spend time with your three kids. Because um, we're in it for lifelong relationships. We want to be at graduations, we want to be in weddings. And so, you know, club, camp, everything that we do is just a relationship to build tools. And then, okay, I guess the other part of that is we try to be really good about connecting them. So if they go somewhere like, you know, a lot of kids, for whatever reason, out of California get shipped down to Arizona. Um, so we try to connect. I'm lucky in that Young Life has this massive network. And so I try to connect. I don't try. I do connect them with the Young Life area there. Uh, it's not always super successful because the kids are super hard and, um, you know, they don't fit in. And, you know, I was thinking about it Monday with some kids and, one of our boys has just like the gnarliest Tourette's. Like he doesn't stop moving or screaming the whole, for two hours when we're together. And I was sitting there and I'm, he's a part of our student leadership program. And so it's him and eight other high school kids that are sitting there for an hour before club and we're just doing discipleship training. And he's just is making a ruckus the whole time. And I'm feeling distracted by it, but I'm listening to these other students share why they're following Jesus and why they want to be a part of this group. And none of them are even phased. And I'm realizing, man, these kids have been with Justin for three years. There is nowhere else that Justin is welcome. He's not actually even foster care. His older brother was a friend of one of our volunteers and heard about what we were doing. He's like, do you think my brother could come? He's never had a friend. I'm like, yeah, bring him. Um, and since then, we've tried to plug him into multiple churches. And I am not speaking ill of the church because the church is rad and we're a part of it. The churches just didn't have the capacity to integrate him. And so he's been asked to leave multiple, like big church services, multiple youth groups. Like they just have been wrong. It's like, we can't deal with you. Um, so uh, part of, I think a lot of what I'm telling you guys is even as I'm thinking about it, for you guys to do, I think what you are gonna do with excellence, you're probably gonna find that if it's not you, you're gonna have someone or a team of people that's gonna to have to continue to step back and hold this big picture view. And it's gonna eat up most of their time, and so they are probably not gonna be real hands-on with whatever the specific population is that you're working with. Um, because you're gonna to have to figure out how to create this net, this network, because no one else is creating a network for them. And that's kind of like we were talking about, if you're not their network, then they're, they're destitute. Um, but you can create a network for them somehow, just soft landings, wherever it is that they go. I treat my leaders as well as I can. Um, you know, whenever I'm with them, I treat them to something nice. If they're coffee connoisseurs or ice cream people or want to eat, I like to eat, so I'm happy to sit down and eat a meal with anybody and pay for it. Um, I also 
try to communicate with them really well. And that was why actually I hired two staff people because I realized I actually have too many volunteers. I can't love and handle all of them well enough. I need people that I can pour into that can then be me to those, or like be with those people. And so it's real regular check-in. Um, it's being hands-on in every part of the work. It's you know uh, easy little reminders. Like I try to make things easy for my leaders. I don't want them to have to remember to text kids about club on Monday night. So we I, we send reminders to each leader, and um, I am constantly telling them, I want you to do this in a way that it's healthy. So if God calls you to be here for the rest of your life, you can. And so what does that look like? And I want you to be free to say no to good things. And so if you're at your wit's end, something crazy is going on, like and you can't come to club Monday, you are free to not come to club. Uh, I think that I have, with all of them, communicated enough what the big picture vision is, um, that they get it and they're bought in, and they're looking to be in kids' weddings. And so I think they feel free to say, I need three weeks off right now if I'm gonna be in anyone's wedding in six years, and so I'm gonna take three weeks off and no one's gonna make me feel guilty. Um, you know, People are gonna check in on me. Um, so I think it's just caring for them well, loving them well, like really doing life with your volunteers in a way that you're intimately aware of what's going on. And, I, and, and being able to read people, you can tell when someone's exhausted. So when I'm with a leader and they are exhausted, I'm like, man, what's going on? It's, you know, you got an extra project at work, you're not sleeping well, you're fighting with your husband or wife or boyfriend, like what's going on in your world? <coughs> okay, well thanks for letting me know that. I can be praying for you, like how can we support you? Um, can I watch your kids and you guys, you and your, you know, you and your husband go on a date this Friday night? Like, um, it's cost for me and it's, it's paying attention. And again, it's, I, it, it eats my capacity. I don't, I don't have time to be with the kids in the way that I would like to, but if I can keep my people healthy, they can be with kids way more. Yeah. So as you, as you befriend social services, they send out our, we have like a club flyer that has information about all of our weekly meetings. And uh, we, we describe what we do as a party with a purpose, um, free food, wild games, and life-changing messages. So we, and I struggle with that, man, because I just want to tell people that we're gonna, it's Jesus. And I, and I don't know if it, what we do is right or not. You know, it's, I try to be as, you know, as um, shrewd as a viper and gentle as a dove. And I don't know, I want to come in and just be, waving Jesus's flag and I think sometimes that's wonderful and maybe sometimes it's not the smartest thing I don't know you guys can all deal with that but so social services sends that out to all the social workers every week um, just because they love us uh, we social services opens a bunch of avenues for us and we have been we learned like we've discovered like two years in out here it's called kinship but it's basically kids in foster care that are with relatives aunties uncles grandparents um, and they get together every Wednesday night to, to they resource the, the, the foster parents, the kinship parents, because it's like you got eight-year-old grandmas and 10-year-old boys, and it's horrible, and the grandma has no idea what to do, and she's got no, I mean, it's like, you know, they, she just needs help. As much as anything, it's like, come and hang out for two hours, and we'll watch your kids. Well, I was like, well, can we do childcare? And they were like, please. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna put club on for all the kids that come to this, we have a huge kinship following, um, kids that come to us from kinship. They do a kinship, a caregiver's day off once a month. We're like, can we come and watch kids? They're like, please. So we know all the kids that are in kinship. Um, the group homes, yeah, it's just showing up with cookies or pizza and spike ball and, you know, or, you know, sending in the women with, you know, it's, I don't mean for this to be generic, but it's just some of the stuff we do with like, you know, whatever you're into, but we have women that like to paint nails and do hair, and so they show up and they give the girls manicures and do hair and, you know, just whatever. We're just trying to love on them and then develop a relationship with them. Um, so there's uh, a bunch of avenues, you know, again, it's, you know, getting to know the social workers and the judges and the therapists uh, in creative ways. Um, we also, like, um, there's something out here called Safe Families, which is like temporary kind of respite care. Um, and we've all signed up for safe families. And so if someone in foster care is like, we need a weekend off, we're losing our minds. We're like, oh, well, you know, one of the leaders will take the kids for the weekend and they're definitely coming to club after that. Um, so 
Yeah, it's about being creative. You know, so we also, we've been for the last year and a half really trying to figure out how do we get into the 18 plus year olds? Because they're just tragedies. The statistics are astounding. By the kid time a kid is 20 after they emancipate 18, so in those two years, by the time they're 20, two thirds of the kids are dead, homeless, or in jail. In America, in Orange County, that is not acceptable. So how do we make a difference? I don't know, we found out that there's some transitional housing places where these kids have like reduced rent and they can hang out and it's like, so we got in touch with them, we're like, hey, can we show up and do a barbecue? Oh, we'd, yeah, how much? Free, we'll bring games and gifts and grill out and feed the kids, get to know them, show up on Valentine's Day with Valentine's. Uh, we babysit the girls and boys that have little ones, we show up with cookies occasionally, like just, you just get creative. Um, as you see need and you know, people find out who you are, then it's, if you're willing to be a servant, there's a, yeah. Alex, who I told you about earlier, she texted me at 10 o'clock uh, Monday night. She was having a panic attack and couldn't fall asleep. And I didn't respond to her text because it's, it's a boundary. Uh, and it was hard, I didn't sleep well because I was thinking about Alex. Um, and in hindsight, maybe I should have responded so I could have had some peace, but I also could have been on the phone with her two, for two hours. Part of it is now, <clears throat> um, ministry for me is very different as a married man than it was as a single man. Sure. So I've been married for two years. <clears throat> My wife has significant health challenges. She grew up in a household of a family that was doing ministry that did it in an unhealthy way, and so she's not having it. And so my primary ministry is to my wife. And so I say no to a lot of good things. I feel like I say no that more than I say yes. And it's hard because my heart is big and I wanna, and I feel like, I've, I feel like my capacity is way bigger than my wife lets it be, um, <laughs> is the honest truth. And I, and I think if I were to really assess that statement, it's my capacity isn't as big as I think it is. And if I'm really gonna do this for another 40, 50, 60 years, I probably can't do it the way that I would do it on my own for that long. And I have good people around me. It is mandatory. You guys all need to have a mentor. You need to have an accountability partner. I have a mentor and two accountability partners. I speak to, neither of my accountability partners live in the area because God hasn't provided that yet. But I talk to both my accountability partners every week. And I consider that part of my job. Um, I meet with my mentor every other week. Uh, they all have freedom to speak into my life. I am completely transparent with them. Um, being known in community and giving people the authority to speak into your life I think is important. The ability to speak into your life. Um, figuring out what it is for you to draw boundaries. I'm not out of the house more than two nights a week. And in youth ministry, that's unheard of. You know, um, and yet God keeps doing amazing things without me there. Um, it's continuing to remind myself that he's going to do this despite me, not because of me, and he's going to do it with or without me um, because this is his thing and not mine. And that's really hard for me to remember and to accept because <laughs> I, as part of my coping, coping mechanism growing up in the, the craziness that I grew up in was I just was like, well, if I'm perfect, maybe my mom won't drink me, my dad won't get angry, like maybe I can have a peaceful household. And it didn't work, but that was like the only way for me to deal as a kid. And so... I have this strive inside of me. I have this low-level anxiety, like it's like a, a drum beat that's constantly beating inside of me that's hard for me to get rid of, and it drives me and to be efficient and to, you know, it's hard for me to like rest and chill out, and a lot of you guys may or may not be able to relate to that. Um, and so it's, it's realizing that I have different um, parts of my life that have to be different the J that's good with kids is different than the J that's good with leaders, that's different than it's the J with the community, that's different than the J that's with my wife. And so when I'm driving home, I have to intentionally shut off all the things that are helpful for me in this world to be a good husband. Um, for me, I have a hard time feeling empathy. It's just like I just kind of turned my sadness switch off as a kid because I would have died if I felt everything that was going on. A lot of the people that you're working with are gonna do the same thing. In some ways, it's a blessing in ministry because I don't know many people that could hold what it is that I hold. 
you guys are going to be asked to hold a lot. You guys are going to hear a lot of stories, and it's going to be heavy. So you got to figure out what it looks like for you to offload that. You, you know, most of you probably it's not wise to offload that on a spouse. Um, you're probably going to need a bunch of different avenues to offload, and you're going to give everybody a little bit. Um, but when I go home, if I'm not empathetic, it crushes my wife because she feels feelings that I don't even understand in such huge ways. And so I got to figure out how when I get home to when my wife tells me something sad, I got to dive into that with her and I got to be sad with her and understand it. And that's hard for me. It's not natural for me. So I have to be intentional. Um, if my home life is good, work is way better. If my wife and I are fighting, it's work so hard. Um, and marriage is hard. Uh, doing life with people is hard and it's messy. So um, continuing to rely on the Lord. I do a day of solitude every month. I don't miss it. Uh, I don't miss my time with my accountability partners or my mentors. Um, I don't miss my time in the Word. I don't miss, I, I have to schedule my prayer time. Because I kind of was a person that just, I'd just be talking to God all the time. And as people pop in, I'd lift them up. My brain is so full that, you know, I, like, I think that I have a running dialogue with God. But I, there's just so much on my heart. I have to schedule time to sit down and be quiet and just talk to God. And schedule times to sit down and be quiet and listen. I live on my Google Calendar. If it doesn't go in my calendar, it doesn't get done. I would say that probably for the most of you, it's, there's going to be so much on your plate that you're going to start off thinking, oh, I'll just remember to do that, and then you won't, and it'll weigh on you, and then all of a sudden the important things get pushed off, and all of a sudden you're the person that doesn't respond to emails, that doesn't respond to texts, that doesn't return phone calls. Don't be that person. You are representing Jesus to everybody that you're interacting with. So communicate beyond it. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Under-promise and over-deliver. Always, especially with the people that you're working with. Do not ever promise anybody anything and then not follow through. And if you're not sure if you can do something, keep your mouth closed. Oh, yes. So that's part of my boundaries. So I take Friday and Saturday off. Sunday is a work day. I think probably for a lot of you guys, like, you just can't get away from working on Sunday. Don't miss church. Um, prioritize it. Uh, say no to something else to go to church. Find rhythm in your life. Um, have rituals and don't miss them. I think it's important for us to just have some things that we can count on because life does get crazy. And all of a sudden, if you start saying no to important, like, where does it stop? Like, you just say no to everything for the needs never ending. Um, what was the question? Take me back to the question. Who just asked the question? No, I know. Someone just said something just before that, didn't they? Day off, yes. So I take Friday and Saturday off. Before I, like, I didn't really ever take days off, but if I was exhausted in one afternoon, I just, like, would put my phone away. Um, my wife told me that it's important to have two days off in a row, and I realized that now, because I don't really actually kind of unwind until my second day off. So really, Saturday is, like, my day of rest. Uh, my wife and I go on a date every week. Um, I just three weeks ago started... So I like to play chess on my phone. So I was thinking, I was like, I need to put my phone on airplane mode because if, even on my day off, if I'm just looking at the time, a text is going to come in, and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about that text. I may not respond to it for two days, but it's now I'm owning it. Um, so then I tried to put my phone on airplane mode, but I really like to play chess, and so I play chess online. And I was like, well, I don't want to have to go my weekends without playing chess. So what I do is... Thursday night, uh, when it's time for me to be done, which is about 10 on Thursday nights because we have our middle school group, and by the time I get home and take kids home and everything, I go through and I turn off all notifications for my phone, for my email, for my group text, for my messaging, everything. So my phone is blank until I wake up Sunday. But the only thing that I get is my chest notifications when it's time for me to make a move. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and then I turn it on Sunday morning, and I've been doing it for three weeks, and the world hasn't stopped spinning. Um, the fires that were burning that I didn't see Thursday night or Friday or Saturday were still burning Sunday morning. Actually, most of the time, they're out by the time that I get to them. It's amazing that someone else could handle things that only I could handle. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
yeah, man, rhythm, all of these things I was talking about, they take discipline. They're hard. I feel anxiety even, like, I find myself, like, checking my phone out of habit on Friday and Saturday, and there's nothing there, and I know it, and I feel anxious about just, like, it's almost, and they've actually done some studies where we get, like, a, 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 they might even be an endorphin hit when we look at our phone. I don't get that endorphin hit Friday and Saturday. Like, I'm adjusting to it. It's weird. Um, but it's important. Uh, I took a class, a college course, um, that was personal health and ministry. And I've worked really hard to stick to the things I learned in that. And I would encourage you guys to, to figure it out. What is it that makes you healthy? Um, and really stick to it. Say no to good things. Draw boundaries and keep them. Um, and be honest with yourself. Like, I ha it was hard for me. It took me months to get to the point where I was like, I need to turn notifications on my phone on the weekends. Because I liked it. It's like I was, I, and, I, and I wouldn't really want to be honest with myself that I liked it. But it, it was also like, well, if anything horrible happens, I can deal with it. And, you know, my wife is pretty on me. So I, I found myself sometimes I was like sneaking, texting people because I didn't want my wife to bust me. And I was like, this is not, this cannot be healthy. I don't know what it is, but this isn't right. And so finally I was honest with myself and made the change. Yeah, it's mostly personal donors, uh, some grants, um, you know, and God just provides. I had someone reach out to me two weeks ago that said, hey, I just found out that my company uh, has a $15,000 grant for um, marginalized youth. Do you want it? Yeah, please. Yeah, let me, here's my tax ID number. Um, so again, I'd, I'd, like I said, I think there's an anointing, anointing. So it's just crazy the way that God provides for uh, these kids. And I, and I, at the beginning of what I did, I spent, actually, so here's part of it. When I came to Orange County, I spent eight months before we actually did any, like we are having a weekly club. I spent eight months developing relationships and social services and equipping myself to learn how to tell the story well of what we do and why it needs to be done and how people can get involved. Um, and so I, God's got to open people's hearts and wallets, but I need to do my part by being excellent in communicating uh, the ways that they can get involved. And so I work, I, I take that really seriously. And I talk to everybody about it. Man, so I'll tell you about Joseph. I guess I should do, I'll do the win, the win first. I don't want to do the loss, but I'll share one. Um, Joseph is a kid that we met when he uh, he was got put in a group home that was coming to our one of our high school groups in Long Beach, and he rolled in and he had a black hoodie on and black jeans and black shoes and had his hoodie cinched up and earbuds in, and he like you couldn't see much but you'd see that he was just scowling, and he rolled through for like four months, and I don't know why he kept coming back. I don't know if the group home was making everyone come. Sometimes you get Christian people in power that just say I'm bringing you. It's mandatory and it can't be, but God bless them. Um, and every week, me and the whole team of leaders were like, hey, what's up? What's your name? Like, but they, it was like we weren't even there. And finally, after like four or five weeks, he like gave me a head nod. And I like went home and was like, dude, we got progress. And then another couple of weeks, he told me his name. And you know, then another couple of weeks, he showed up and he didn't have his hood on. And, um, then a couple weeks after that, he like had a conversation with a couple of leaders. And then a couple weeks after that, I saw him giggle at one of the games that was going on that was crazy. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks after that, he was like interacting at club and sitting there and listening. And, um, you know, a few months after that, he was like a kid playing the games. And um, it was it was crazy. And then he started to share his story. And he, you know, he was in a gang at that point. Um, he had a daughter. He, you know, was fully addicted to a litany of drugs and was partying and not going to school and just like all the things that you would expect. And then he went to camp with us that summer. So that was a whole school year worth of beating our heads against the wall and then maybe, you know, some progress in April or something. He goes to camp with us in July and he meets Jesus and gives his life to Jesus. And then we're on the bus ride home and he goes, I don't think God would want me to be in this gang, but I'm scared. I, I'm like, I'm in. And uh, he, before we had gone to camp, had to shoot somebody and sell some cocaine. And so he like did those things. And so he was in. 
um, and gangs, to get out of a gang, it's violent and like you're, the beating is oftentimes one that you don't survive. And we talked about it and we prayed about it and it was so heavy on my heart. I was like, gosh, we need to just like steal you away or like what do we do? Um, but he had a daughter and uh, I don't know. He decided that he was going to get jumped out of the gang. So he did. And then he showed up at the doorstep of one of our leaders afterwards and was just a bloody mess. Um, but then he kept coming to club and he started going to Bible study with our leaders and um, decided that he was going to take care of his daughter and finish high school. And now he's got a job at UPS in LA and uh, it's a career job. He'll be able to retire from it. Um, he's back together with the baby mama and is taking care of his daughter and um, is actually volunteering at his youth group at his church and yeah, Joseph is a win. Sex trafficking is maybe feels like the heaviest thing that we deal with. Um, and we had a girl that came to the club for four months and what we've realized is that what we do isn't special, but as we teach kids their identity and that they're loved by God, that they see that their life has value, and instead of assuming that they're not going to live past high school, they start to make decisions based on their life having value and having a future, and there's a ton of resources for most of them, and so they start taking advantage of resources. So we focus a lot on kids understanding their identity, and we work so hard to help this girl understand her identity, and she was so broken. And she couldn't understand her worth beyond the guys that she wanted to sleep with her. And she disappeared one day. And no phone, no nothing. The house she was staying at, didn't know anything about the social worker. She just fell off the face of the earth. No action on her, Facebook or social media, Instagram. Um, and then we heard through the grapevine that she, some slick guy, told her he loved her and she thought it was real and then he asked her to start sleeping with people and the next thing you know she's enslaved and she had a, a sister that she loved and the threat was on her sister's life and so we actually ended up being able to get back in touch with her but she was unwilling to leave the situation she was in because she thought she was protecting her sister. And that's a loss. stories that they um, tell and the communities they want to love and serve, you would, uh, you would just be in awe, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so maybe if you would give us a benediction or a charge. Yeah. Could we, could we pray for you? Well, I was going to yeah. ask you to do that afterwards. Mm -hmm. oh. I would love that. <laughs> so prepare yourself. Um, yeah, the people you're going to love are going to be angry and we serve a God of peace and healing. It's going to be really hard. And God will give you supernatural strength and discernment to know what to do. It's okay for you to have to be sad for the people that you love and feel that sadness. Because if you don't, it'll eat you up and take you out. Um, it's okay to have peace and joy when the people around you and their lives are broken. It's okay to have peace and joy even when everyone around you is broken and miserable and suffering. It's not just okay, that's how God asks us to live. He invites us to live and that's what he promises. okay to say no to good things. God's going to do awesome stuff. Surround yourself with good people. Each and every one of you is going to be a mark for the enemy. 
and the power that's in us is greater than the power that's in the world. But be smart. Don't put yourself in bad situations. Don't get taken out because a moment of temptation and a moment of opportunity come together and you aren't in a, a healthy enough place to resist. And that might be a helpful thing to think about. If you're too run down and you think that whatever the hard thing is for you, that if the perfect opportunity arose that you might fall subject to it, then chill out, take a step back and get healthy, get rested. And you're gonna see God do amazing things. Celebrate the victories. And maybe even consider what it looks like to change your definition of what a victory is. And celebrate them. And tell the story. And really celebrate. Don't just move on to the next thing. Because there's going to be seasons where you're not going to have a not, a, like a whole lot. And encourage your people. There's going to be times where you're not seeing any fruit from what you're doing. And you're going to have leaders that are fresh in eight months and they haven't seen any fruit. Tell them the stories of what God's done. Encourage them to stay the course. Help people know that we're in for the long haul.